Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean? Good music. It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band. It's a bad band. It's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what. There's music in the air. Bob Dylan is one of the few rock and rollers from the 60s who remained relevant into his 60s. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. We'll conclude our series on Bob Dylan by bringing things up to modern times. And we'll review the latest by My Morning Jacket. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. Time now for some music news. be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. That is, the revolution will not be televised from the great Gil Scott Heron, who passed away at age 62 over the Memorial Day holiday. Jim, I think it goes without saying that this is one of the most profound artists of the last half century, perhaps not as well known as some of those people in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But I'd put him on on a level of a Bob Dylan in just the way he handled words and the way he infused popular music with a sense of social and political consciousness. The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, that was the song that put him on the map. Let's remember that Gil Scott Heron got his start not as a musician, But as an accomplished poet and author, he had published a novel by the time he was 19. He he followed it up with a second novel a year or two later. He also had a book of poetry published. This got him the attention of Bob Teal, a famed jazz producer who had worked with people like Louis Armstrong in the past. You heard greatness in Gil Scott Heron. 
And Scott Heron was intrigued with the idea of having a musical career because he felt he might be able to reach a wider audience. He had seen the last poets uh, perform in New York in the late 60s and was intrigued, this idea of spoken word over the top of a very sparse rhythm section. And that's exactly what he did with The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, a biting commentary on the way media manipulated the way we thought about the world and in turn the way people were narcotized by this medium. So Gil Scott Heron took it a step further. He said, okay, I'm going to put fuller musical backdrops behind my poetry. He started to work with a college friend of his named Brian Jackson. And over the next dozen years, they made about 13 studio albums. Eventually got signed by one Clive Davis to Arista Records when he was starting up that label in the mid-70s. Got some chart success. All the while, extremely serious work. I mean, you did not talk about party music when you're talking about Gil Scott Heron. Merging the poetry of Langston Hughes and Leroy Jones with soul, funk, and jazz. The formula worked on a number of songs, never really got a huge number of hits out of them, but incredibly influential. When you talk to the second, third, fourth generation of hip-hop artists that followed him, the neo-soul movement with people like Erica Badu and Common and the Roots, they all paid tribute to Gil Scott Heron as a major influence. In turn, Gil Scott Heron didn't hear it. He says, you know, I don't know what they're talking about. I have nothing to do with that music. He saw himself as a, as a separate entity. It's kind of sad, but really his roots were in blues and jazz, and he really didn't hear himself as a hip-hop artist per se, even though he influenced that genre greatly. He had a handful of hits. The one I'm going to play is one of those near hits. If you listen to FM progressive radio in the mid-70s, you might have heard this song. But again, politically infused material talking about the apartheid situation in South Africa with a great beat. I mean, Gil Scott Heron was sampled numerous times, not just for the words, but for the beats, those grooves that he and Brian Jackson created. And here's a great example of it. Gil Scott Heron with Johannesburg on Sound Opinions. Johannesburg by Gil Scott Heron, dead at the age of 62. I'm sick of love. I hear the clock. I'm sick of listening to Sound Opinions, and today is the last segment in our three-part series on the music of Bob Dylan, as we wish him a happy 70th birthday. 
Greg, that is a version of Love Sick from the 1999 tour where Charlie Sexton had just joined the band on guitar, Larry Campbell's also playing guitar, and Dylan is mm. playing guitar. Now, I've made the point a couple times in our examination of Dylan that I hadn't learned to love him. And part of the reason was I started going to see him at 17, 18, or 19, and I don't think I saw a good Dylan show for the first 15 years, mm. four or five attempts to go see one. People kept saying, you're going to love this guy live. There was a period there really heavy in the 80s where he just wasn't on fire and he just didn't seem to care. Then all of a sudden, in the early 90s, something clicked. And there was another 10-year period from the early 90s to early in the new millennium where I saw Dylan easily 15, 16 times, and I didn't see a bad show. He was challenging that band by leading it with the guitar and pushing it in places it clearly had never been and was going somewhere different every night, especially when Sexton and Campbell were both in the band. You remember those tours. Mm, That was awesome. Extraordinary stuff. And that's why we decided to conclude our three-part Dylan special by bringing the focus up to modern times, starting in 1989 and going up to 2006's Modern Times. You know, Greg, we would have needed a 40-part Dylan special (laughs) to include everything, and we just couldn't do that. There's obviously some incredible work in the 70s that we're glossing over. We left off in 1966 with Blonde on Blonde. Less so, less spectacular in the 80s, but we wanted to underscore that Dylan is that rare artist who has never lived in the past, who has never rested on his laurels. That's why we thought it would be fun to talk about the recent past and into the present. Today, Dylan is suffering from arthritis. This is why he's supposedly playing piano and leaving the guitar on the stand. I don't think as a result of that that he's as strong on stage today as he was in the 90s. But who knows? Next week, he could be back. Yeah, you never know with Dylan, Jim. He's one of those guys that could give a terrible performance one night, and then the glory days are back the next night. That's why he remains so relevant. In tandem with the live performances, Jim, and you're absolutely right, the guy really rediscovered his muse on the road, just constantly playing his songs in front of anybody who had wanted to hear them. The studio recordings recovered as well. There was a time there where Dylan was questioning whether he ever wanted to write another song or whether he ever wanted to make another album. And it all turned around for him when he hooked up with Daniel Lanois in 1989 to make the Oh Mercy record. That was his finest album in a decade plus. Returned with Lanois in 97 to make Time Out of Mind, which swept the Grammy Awards that year and put Dylan in a new place. Really unprecedented when you think about it. An artist in the late phase of his career, once again at the top of his game. I really can only think of maybe a handful of rock and rollers that have achieved what Dylan did in that decade by making that comeback. And then he followed it up with Love and Theft in 2001 and Modern Times in 2006. Very strong series of albums, especially when you consider it's essentially the third act in Bob Dylan's career. Now, Oh Mercy and Time Out of Mind were produced by Daniel Lanois, who is famous for working with U2, among others. But the engineer on those records was equally important, Mark Howard. He's worked with everyone from Iggy Pop to Avril Lavigne, and he joins us now to tell us about working with Bob Dylan in the studio. Mark, welcome to Sound Opinions. Uh, Thank you. Let's set up your first experience with recording Dylan, Oh Mercy album in 1989. This was a key period in Dylan's life. He was coming off kind of a desultory period where he was questioning whether he was even going to write songs anymore. These sessions start 1988-89. What was Dylan's frame of mind when you began working with him in New Orleans? I think uh, his frame of mind was probably a searching period for him because, like you said, you know, he just came out of the 
that 80s period. And so I think Dan Lamois was searching for, you know, kind of get him back to writing some great songs. Dan would always be pushing him to uh, write another song like Lay Lady Lay or, you know, like one of those big classics. And Dylan was like, well, I don't got that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So the way the sessions started out, it was kind of small, just Dan and Dylan in the room. He didn't know us, and we didn't know him, so it's trying to find that working balance. I was an assistant, really, on that record, and Malcolm Byrne was the engineer. And because Malcolm was a musician, he ended up playing keyboards and uh, harmonica and a couple other things. So, you know, Dylan would be sitting in a chair, and he would be playing sloppily, and then, you know, I'd put the microphone in front of his mouth, and he'd move the other way, and so I'd move it over to where he was, (laughs) and then he'd move the other way. So I literally had to sit on the floor with a mic stand following him around to get some <laughs> takes out of him. It was, it was kind of crazy there for a while. It, it sounds like it could have been really intimidating. It, it was. Dan has certain type of temperament for, for people, and you know he wants everybody to put in everything they got. And I think Dylan was being a little bit, you know, he was playing against us a little bit and was was testing us really to see how far we would go. I've read that he would not even look at you or use your name for the first weeks and weeks into the recording process, right? Yeah, it was a strange thing because I was there and he was just kind of like pretending like, I, yeah, I didn't even exist. It's like that with any ex- a relationship. I, I think you have to win the person over. I'm into motorcycles and I had a couple of Harleys outside. And so... He said, hey, do you think you could get me one of those bikes? And I thought, yeah, man, I can get you whatever you want. And so uh, he came up with some money, and uh, I went to Florida on the weekend, and I got him like a 1966 Electroglide, like a real classic, a real beauty. It was like baby blue and white. And uh, so we hit off on a motorcycle enthusiast world, so it was, it was a lot of talking about bikes. And i get the bike running for him, and he'd go out for a ride, and then he'd come back and he'd say, you know, the police are real friendly around here. And I said, they're not friendly. They're, they're waving at you because you're not wearing a helmet. They're trying to pull you over. So it's like uh, it, was, uh, it was quite funny. It seems like he had to get away sometimes. I would imagine you guys wanted to get away from him. The question about Oh Mercy, at the time, I remember, was a lot of people were curious about how Dylan would relate to this producer, Daniel Lenoir, was known for kind of having a heavy hand when it came to putting a, a sonic imprint on the records. How did that tension resolve between those two? <laughs> well, Dylan wrote something pretty interesting in, in that Chronicles book where he said he didn't know what we were going for, and he was taking these long rides in the country, and, and then it came to him. He's, he's, he finally figured out what angle we were coming from and where we were going, and then until that point, he was kind of like against us, and then... Once he figured it out, he's like, wow, this is actually sounding really great, and I really like how it sounds, so it's a great sound for him, and we got an amazing vocal sound on him. Wisdom is thrown into jail It rots in a cell The sky that is hell Leave no one to pick up the trail We live in a political world Where mercy wants to play Life is in the end Death disappears And the steps are through the nearest place So Dylan starts out, Mark, by saying he wants a real 50s sound, right? You know, he's he's fascinated with the way records were made in the 50s, you know, often one microphone, a lot of presence, uh, depth of field. But by no means is that the, that the only factor of either of the two records you worked on. I mean, the, you know, the sounds got bigger and bigger as the working process developed, no? 
Time Out of Mind was the record where we had a we had a studio in uh, Oxnard, California. I was renting this old 1940s Mexican porn cinema. It was like shut down for years, and I kind of moved in there and took all the seats out and converted into this huge studio. And that's kind of where Time Out of Mind started. And Bob would drive up from his place uh, in Malibu area, and in between Malibu and Oxnard, he would get this radio station in his pickup truck that played like all the great classics from the 50s and then right on up to like uh, Little Walter and all these, you know, great blues records. And he said, like, why do those records sound so great and why can't anybody get that today? I said, we can get it. We just have to approach it in that method where we used only tube microphones and ribbon microphones and classic preamps. And, and yeah, we'd, I'd only use one or two mics on the drums and... Uh, it was was pretty ambient sounding, and that was the approach I took on Taiwan of Mine. Well, my nerves are exploding, and my body's tense. I feel like the whole world can be pinned up against the fence. I've been hit too hard. To tell you the truth, we started there in Oxnard, and we had an amazing sound. It was like some of the best piano sounds I got and a killer vocal sound. And we were ready to make the record there, and Bob said, you know, look, this is too close to home. I can't work here. You know, I got the family and stuff here. I, I need to be like isolated and go somewhere where I can uh, think and write these songs. So then he, one day he comes in and let's go to Miami. It was like the furthest point away. So I remember at Christmas time I uh, I loaded the truck at Christmas and I drove all the way to Miami with all the same microphones and all of the same. Uh, <laughs> I brought these little Neve BCM10 mixers with me and a bunch of motorcycles and. We ended up going to Criteria in Miami. We were working in this big room in Criteria, but the room was like a film, one of those big film rooms where where they shoot video. So the room didn't have a very good sound. It was really kind of, the room itself was spitty and echoey. So I was a bit bummed there for a while. Things turned around. I'd set up this little apartment for Bob because it was such a huge room, and there was like 15 people in the room at the same time, so he, he needed to be isolated at the same time. So I... Out of gobos and stuff, I built a little apartment for him with little windows and a lamp, and hmm. so he had a little place to hide out. It wasn't until then that it created a vibe in there, and it actually felt good, and things started to sound better. So that that's really what happened on on time on mine. Talk about the writing aspect of Dylan as a lyricist. It it sounded like initially it was just like a lot of words on a page and how do we turn these into songs was that an initial issue for you and Lenoir I don't think so because the way he works it's just incredible I've never seen anybody else really work this way it's all in his head and he can pull verses out of his head on you know just on the spur of a second he would have like songs like Highlands on Time Out of Mind where the song's 17 minutes long for 17 minutes you can remember every verse but it must be a holiday There's nobody around She studies me closely As I sit down 
she got a pretty face and long white shiny legs. We'll have more on Bob Dylan after a quick break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later on, you, the listener, have the last word. Want to share your sound opinions about Bob Dylan or anything in the music world? Call 888-859-1800 and leave us a message. I say that's right. Bring me some. She says we ain't got any. You picked the wrong time to come. Then she says, I know you're an artist. Draw a picture of me. I said I would if I could, but I don't do sketches from memory. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. That's Bob Dylan performing Man in the Long Black Coat. And we're going to continue our celebration of the singer and songwriter on the occasion of his recent 70th birthday. We're talking with engineer Mark Howard, who worked on two of Dylan's best efforts in this third act of his career, Time Out of Mind in 1997 and Oh Mercy in 1998. Mark, that song Long Black Coat from Oh Mercy features some cricket sounds courtesy of Brian Eno. Tell us more about that. Those crickets, they came from... We had just finished a record with the Neville Brothers, which was the Yellow Moon record. And Brian Eno had come in on that to help out in the beginning when we started the Yellow Moon record. And he, he has a DX, uh, Yamaha DX7, which he's totally gone into the memory and customized all of the sounds. And so during the Yellow Moon session, these crickets appeared. And he has these insect sounds. And in New Orleans, there's these cicada bugs that ha- ha- make this, this like really kind of like whistly kind of loud tone. Mm. Eno would be communicating with the insects. He would do a melody, <laughs> and then the insects would copy the melody. And I thought, wow. And then he'd do it again, and they would do it again. So he's actually communicating with his insects with his keyboard sound, which is very <laughs> strange. And so he ended up leaving those, those cricket sounds with us. So we had those cricket sounds in, uh, in our DX7, so... When it came around on uh, Oh Mercy, that uh, Malcolm was playing the crickets. Well, uh, well, you know, I was recording the song, and so it became uh, part of that track. And you know, "Man in Long Black Coat" I think is one of the classic songs of that record. You know, it's haunting. She never said nothing. That was nothing. She wrote. She gone with a man in a long black coat.
there, there was some criticism about the technology. Some critics dared to say uh, the technology kind of almost overwhelmed uh, Dylan. Uh, how do you feel, you know, now, I mean, you know, 89's a long time ago now. How do you feel Oh Mercy stands up, Mark, from your point of view? I still listen to it to this day, and I think it uh, it's a really hi-fi sounding record. You know, it's a lot different sounding than uh, Time Out of Mind, but it's a little more dense sounding. And I, I really thought that it was a great sounding record, and it, it I felt that the record really didn't get the kind of attention it should have, really. Well, it was an odd time for Dylan, because he'd fallen off the map in, in a lot of ways. Oh Mercy was, I think, now widely acknowledged as, as sort of the first step in his comeback, his late career comeback. And then you returned to the studio with him to make Time Out of Mind in uh, 96. The album was eventually released in 97. At that time, too, Dylan had not recorded any original songs in a period of like six or seven years. He had once again stalled. It sounded like the vibe was similar to where he was with uh, Oh Mercy in that he was at a period in his career where he was questioning whether or not he even wanted to be in the studio anymore and, and writing new music. What was your assessment of where Dylan was at when the recording sessions for Time Out of Mind began? Time Out of Mind started with an invitation from, from Dylan at that time to mix. Uh, he did the show for the House of Blues, I think for the Olympics or something, and they wanted Dan to mix it. and So I mixed it with Dan, and that was really how it started, where I'd finished doing the whole, all of the songs that we he wanted mixed for, for this live session. And it was like the very last song. He goes, this song's got a harmonica in it. Like, can you make it sound electric? So I said, okay, yeah, I can make it sound electric. So I took it off the tape and I ran it through like a little uh, tube screamer kind of guitar distortion pedal and then into like a little uh, tweed amp and then I re-recorded it back on a track. So that way he would have this kind of distorted harmonica sound. But after he finished the harmonica, his vocal came through that amp. And when he heard his vocal come through this distorted amp, he's like, wow, that sounds amazing. I had to remix the whole record <laughs> with that vocal sound on there. There's a That became the sound for Time Out of Mind. You know, a lot of people look back at that record, Mark, and talk about it as Dylan confronting his mortality. You know, he's well into his 50s by now. The story that gets confused for some people is that he did, in fact, suffer a life-threatening illness after that record was recorded, and people sort of conflate those events wrongly. But what was your take? Was Dylan kind of looking at his life? I mean, did you sort of see it in any way as a, a dark record when Dylan was making it? No, I didn't have that vibe at all. I thought it was quite uplifting at the, like when we first started because he, he was doing, he was coming out when we were mixing the that show for him. He'd say, I got these new songs, you want to hear them? And he'd go over to the piano and he'd, he'd play this track for Dan, and but he wouldn't sing and he'd say, well, what do you think? And Dan would go, well, it sounds great, but uh, I need to hear some lyrics. And the next day he'd come in and goes, here, I'll play you another song. And he'd go to the piano and play it and goes, so what do you think of that one? And Dan goes, well, that's really great, but I really need to hear some lyrics. So he came on this other day and he played Can't Wait on piano. 
And I swear to God, it was so haunting, the hair on my arms went up. It was like a mm. gospel version of Can't Wait. We were like blown away, and we thought, wow, if this is any idea of what the record's going to be, it's going to be a classic, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, because cause it's gospel, it's uplifting, you know? Like, there was no darkness to it. So th- that song, Can't Wait, became like a pillar of the, of the beginning of the record. Well, it's way past midnight, and there's a people all around. Some on their way up, some on their way down. The air burns, and I'm trying to think straight. This thing was is uh, we went to Miami and we tried to cut it with a band and it wasn't happening in Miami. You know, with the band, it was like it was a whole other thing. And so we never quite got back to that version. And the version that's on the record is a great one, but I swear to God that that other one is. But it was a shame because that that was the thing that Dan was striving for, and it became an issue on Time Out of Mind where you know Dan was really going for it, and uh, you know. Dan would Dan would work up the band, and Dylan would walk in, and he heard that they were working up Can't Wait, and he's like, I'm not recording that song ever again. I've already did it. It's over. It's done. Hmm. And Dan's like, well, you know, let's give us give us a chance here. Like, like, no. And then Dylan went into, like, this kind of crazy man zone where he had these, like, golf gloves on, <laughs> and he would hold the guitar backwards like a baseball bat. And he would slowly kind of like kind of pitch it like if he was like doing a baseball kind of like at Dan's head, like if he was going to hit him with it. <laughs> it was it was really straight. And then at that point, Dylan wouldn't talk to Dan directly. He would always talk through me to talk to Dan. And they so they had this mo- little while where things got really intense in the studio where, you know, we'd be listening back to a take and Dan would go, well, it's really great. And Dylan would turn to me and look and go, uh, you hear somebody talking? Like, oh man! In the end, you know they're 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 good friends, and it's just like uh, it's just wild to kind of go through those kind of moments where he won't talk to him. So they're talking. Dylan's only talking to me, and Dan's only telling me what to tell him. And so it was like I was the middleman there for a while. It was it was, it was kind of crazy, intense for me, but great. It, it's interesting too that Dylan has never really every record since then, I believe, has been a self-produced record. He's not really worked with outside producers since then. And the sound is on the more recent records is a little bit more, you know, band in the studio being recorded live uh, versus the Time Out of Mind record. It is a singular record in his catalog. Nothing else sounds quite like it. Shadows are falling, and I've been here all day. It's too hot to sleep, and time is running away. Feel like my soul has turned into steel I've still got the scars at the sun How does it hold up for you years later as a work of art? It still holds up to me, you know, it's um, Not Dark Yet, I think, is a classic off that record. It's quite haunting. It's funny because... For a while, like in the beginning, 
I thought that record was a little harsh sounding, a little harder, you know, than Oh, oh Mercy is a little more pleasant to listen to, big, richer sounds and kind of like uh, wider textures, where on Time Out of Mind, because it's it's 15 people playing in one room all at the same time, the record had a, had a, a lot of leakage in the vocal mic, and because of that, it, it makes it a little more harsher in a in a way. It's not as big and warm round sound like if you did a vocal off a, you know, mm-hmm. by itself in a room. Right. So the record holds up. I was pretty close to it in the beginning, and I was being super crit- critical on on that it was harsh and and. But now when I listen to it, it's uh it's a quite a a great sounding record, and there's a lot of textures in there that it's funny because when you hear it years later, it's like wow, okay, yeah, that really does work. Why do you still do it? Why are you still out here? Well, it goes back to the destiny thing. I mean, I made a bargain with it a long time ago, and I'm holding up my hand. What was your bargain? To get where I am now. Should I ask who you made the bargain with? <laughs> with, with, with the chief chief commander. On this earth? <laughs> and on this earth and in, uh, and then in the world we can't see. If you're just joining us on Sound Opinions, that's Bob Dylan talking about selling his soul to the devil during a 2004 interview with 60 Minutes. We've been learning more about life with Dylan in the studio from engineer and producer Mark Howard. Mark, even at this lofty point in his career where he's accomplished so much, he likes to bring chaos into the mix. Is he either fooling around and always just trying to get a rise out of people, or does he like to keep everybody off balance just because he thinks creativity comes from that place? I'm sure it's a little of both, but when I'm alone in the room with Bob, he's just like you and me, and we're just talking just like this. But if if somebody walks in the room that he doesn't know, he goes into a character <laughs> and I've seen him too that do this quite a few times where, you know, like Billy Bob Thornton dropped by the studio one day and Dylan went into this like weird character on him and like, hey, how are you? And started talking different. It was just like strange. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, like wouldn't give Billy Bob his, his hand to shake. He would just give him his finger. You know, he'd just <laughs> hold out his finger. And, like, then Billy Bob would grab his finger and shake him like, okay, hey, how are you? What about the idea of this late career renaissance that he's had? You know, those two albums being very notable in that. Very few artists, I think, of that vintage have been able to make really top quality work that gets compared to their best earlier stuff. What explains the fact that he was able to make this comeback, or whatever you want to call it, late in his career where he was producing great work again? What do you mean by, like, the the time out of mind or like lately yeah i would say oh mercy and then in a time out of mind i don't think anybody was expecting bob dylan to be making albums of the year let's face it many artists of dylan's vintage aren't aren't making their best work anymore they're they're sort of touring and cashing in on on what they did in the past or recycling that it doesn't seem like dylan was doing that how do you explain the difference do you have any perspective on it he knew that on oh mercy that we got something out of him that nobody was getting out of him. And he just, I think he was just interested to see if that would happen again on Time Out of Mind. And sure enough, it happened again. You know, it's like a, we don't work like anybody else. Dan uh, Lanois has got a certain way he, he works with people, and he gets in there and he pulls things out of people that are not normally pulled out because they're they're not used to people telling them what to do. Like uh, with Dylan, everybody's like, yeah, you're great. It sounds great. He never has a perspective, but if somebody comes up to him and, that he respects and gives him an opinion, like, yeah, I think maybe you should try it in this key, and I really like that vocal phrasing, then suddenly he's got somebody he can trust. It's kind of like a bandmate. So it's 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 a matter of having somebody that you trust and you that you can uh, 
relate to. So I think that's the way it works. We've been talking to Mark Howard, the fine producer and engineer who's worked with many artists, including Bob Dylan. Mark, thanks for being our guest on Sound Opinions. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much. Every day your memory goes dimmer It doesn't haunt me like it did before I've been walking through the middle of nowhere Trying to get to before they close the door you're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and Jim and I are going to take a look at some specific songs from this late period in Dylan's career, the Act Three, if you will. A lot of music recorded, a lot of music left on the shelf or reconfigured for later albums. Dylan was extremely prolific during those sessions, especially with Lenoir for the O Mercy record in 89 and Time Out of Mind in 1997. Some of his best performances got left on the shelf, Jim. He recorded this song, Mississippi. It ended up on his Love and Theft record in 2001. But I think the versions that he cut out of the Time Out of Mind record in 97 were actually superior to it, Yeah, which is remarkable. I mean, you think about what he was trying to achieve in the studio. He and Lenoir were going back and forth about how the record should sound. Dylan was wanting a more of a stripped-down record. Lenoir wanted more production. So the stripped-down version of Mississippi got left behind on that record. But I think it's a fascinating Dylan performance. There's a couple of things going on here. One, he's reaching back to more traditional music as a jumping-off point. This he did in his early career. He would look back at the old folk and blues songs that were his inspiration and then try to write a new Dylan song out of that kernel, out of that seed. And he did the same thing with Mississippi. He took an old prison song called Rosie, took a line or two out of that and used it as a jumping off point for this brand new composition where he looked at his own mortality. The whole idea of this prison gang singing about, man, if I'd only gotten out of Mississippi one day earlier, I might not be here. And he's sort of applying that to his own life in this song. I think it is a rambling folk epic right up there with Tangled Up in Blue and sort of assessing his life as this long journey. And here we are. So, of course, it's about his own life, and it's also about regret over not finally consummating this relationship with this muse, this woman, this lover that he has been longing for. I need something to distract me. I'm going to look at you till my eyes go blind. He's talking about the last days of his life and the one final wish that he has. People have talked about the deterioration of his voice. I think in this song, the vocal performance is extraordinary. The voice is more limited, sure, than it was in the 60s, but there's still a lot of flexibility in it, a lot of pliability, and it comes across. It's a beautiful song where he has a sense of humor. When he's talking about those lines, things should start to get interesting right about now. The way he (laughs) delivers those lines, just remarkable stuff. He's at the end of his line, but at the same time, there's a little life kicking in the old boy yet. It's a wonderful vocal performance, and the band behind him, empathetic, very much live on the studio floor. This is the way Dylan envisioned this song and this record to sound. He didn't get there with Lenoir. He revisited it a few years later, but I don't think any performance that he's ever done of this song has topped this particular one, this outtake from the Time Out of Mind sessions in 1997. This is Bob Dylan with Mississippi on Sound Opinions. Well, my ship's been split to splinters It's sinking fast I'm drowning in the poison, got no future, got no past. But my heart is not weary, it's light and it's free. I got nothing 
about affection for those who's singing with me. Everybody's moving if they ain't already there. Everybody's got to move somewhere. Stick with me, baby. Anyhow, things should start to get interesting right about now. You can't come back all the way There's only one thing I did wrong Stayed in Mississippi Nothing too long That is a rare version of Mississippi by Bob Dylan, an outtake from his Time Out of Mind sessions in 1997. Jim, what do you got next for us? Well, Greg, I'm going to play something from the uh, 2006 album Modern Times, but I want to make a point first. As critics, it has always bothered us when people live in the past and give their heroes a pass based on nostalgia. Mm -hmm. You and I are hardcore Dylan fans, but we will admit there have been some mistakes along the way. I think it only does him a disservice to not be honest in our criticism of him. When he's been great, he's been on fire. I like the last... 15 years of albums, a little less than you. I think the Lanois stuff was a little overproduced. And as he's been producing his own records in the last 5 to 8 to 10 years, as Jack Frost, pseudonymously, he's been indulging a penchant for uh, Rudy Valley Bing Crosby 1930s kind of radio crooning pop. Mm. Whatever weird thing it, it, it conjures in his psyche from growing up or from what, what his grandparents played growing up, I don't know. I don't like hearing that stuff. But there are moments of sheer and utter brilliance on these albums. There are not many rock stars, we can say, have been into their 60s and 70s who you know, have maintained a level of excellence that is every bit as good as when they were at their peak. And I think really when all is said and done, you know, there was bad stuff on the first 10 Dylan albums too, Mm -hmm. or, or stuff that wasn't as good as other stuff. And we can say the same of the new albums. And I will say, hands down, the song I'm going to play, Ain't Talkin', which closes the Modern Times album in 2006, is the spookiest song this man ever has written. He's 65 at the time he's given us this. He's producing the album himself. It's a really pared down and simple musical setting he's creating. Lonesome fiddle, piano, little hand percussion, okay, and of course that voice. You talked about the deterioration of the voice. Well, for this song, it is the perfect voice and he's Mm -hmm. at the perfect age to be singing it. Is this a fallen angel or is this the devil? 
is this a preacher or is this a sinner looking for salvation? It's almost nine minutes long. This is Bob Dylan's heroine, if you will, mm-hmm. by Lou Reed. It's epic. It's a Dante-esque vision of hell or temptation. He is struggling to do good, but he's also considering committing murder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he's on this path. He doesn't know which way to go. It's an apocalyptic anthem. And I think, you know, I think this was the vibe that Lenoir was trying to get with a lot of production, and Dylan wound up getting it very simply with the words and a pared-down musical setting. I think it's an absolutely brilliant song. I defy you to find anything from the first 15 years of his career that is better than this, really. Ain't Talking by Bob Dylan on Sound Opinions. As I walked out tonight in the mystic garden The wounded flowers were dangling from the vine I was passing by a young cool crystal fountain Someone hit me from behind Ain't talking, just walking Prayer has the power to help, so pray from the mother. In the human heart, an evil spare from dwell. I'm a trying to love my neighbor and do good unto others. But oh mother, things ain't going well. Bob Dylan with Ain't Talkin' from his 2006 release, Modern Times, the song I wanted to play to wish Bob a happy birthday. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBZ Chicago and PRX, Greg and I will review the new album by the Louisville Quintet, My Morning Jacket. They will jump on your misfortune when you're down Ain't talking, just walking Eating hog eyed Glad to have me around 
crush you with wealth and power. Every waking moment you could cry. I'll make the most of one last extra hour. I'll avenge my father's death and I'll step Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is a track called Hold It On, the Black Metal, from the new sixth album by My Morning Jacket. Greg, this band has become one of the biggest in the rock world in terms of its power on stage, touring the summer shed circuit every summer. Originally from Louisville, Kentucky, started out with a very Neil Young-influenced sound, very rootsy. A lot of people have said they're kind of like the arena rock level Wilco in terms of the way they've been incorporating more and more genre experimentation in recent years. And a lot of people who love them deeply say that Jim James and his vocals are the real draw of this band. You can call him Jim James. You can call him Yim James. You can call him by his real name, James Oleges. Now, you and I were pretty harsh on their last album in 2008, Evil Urges, which took the experimentation way too far to the point of sounding on one track, Highly Suspicious, which we went on record saying was one of the worst songs ever recorded. <laughs> Sounded like fish covering prints. Circuital is the name of the new album, which implies coming full circle back to the roots of the group. And yet there is a lot of experimentation still on this record, as we heard on that track, holding on the black metal, which happens to be inspired by a song from a compilation of soul pop from Thailand, complete with a choir and horns. The new one was recorded in a church gym in Louisville by Tucker Martin, who's also worked with the Decemberists. We'll give our opinions on it in a minute. Let's play a track first. This is Out of My System by My Morning Jacket on Sound Opinions. The lust of youth versus married security. I'm glad I'm here now. But just between you and me, I had to get out and make the deals. And let me know how it feels, but that it ain't real. Out of my system. There's a way to have it all, you know I ain't kidding Some things I know I'll never get out of my system If you don't live now, you ain't even trying Then when you're on your way to a midlife crisis Living it out Bones 
That's out of my system from my morning jacket and the new album Circuital. That is the final track on what would have been side one in the vinyl era, Jim. This is discreetly divided into two sides the way I look at it. And the whole idea here was to create a cohesive statement, a more cohesive album than Evil Urges was. Evil Urges was all over the place in 2008. Now they wanted to get back to, as you said, that original sound that put them on the map and create something a little bit more consistent. I think they generally succeed on the first half of this record. The problem is, you need two halves to make a great record. (laughs) They haven't done it. The first half is terrific. I love the way the music sort of builds to that finish, that uh, combination of those Beach Boys harmonies and that pedal steel guitar on Out of My System is a wonderful way to cap off the first half of this record. And I'm thinking, maybe they made that classic that people are saying they have in them, because I think this is a terrific live band that's never really made a great studio album. Well, the problems start on side two with that song, Black Metal, that we played at the top. Again, not quite as egregious as Highly Suspicious. It's close. But a close second to being one one of the more corny things they've ever done. And the rest of the second half of the album is equally unspectacular. Very sleepy finish, a couple of very drowsy ballads at the end of the record. I'm going to give it a burn it. Good try. First half of the record, I can listen to that all day. Second half, I'll never play it again. Greg, i got to say, you're getting soft because this is a trash it record. <laughs> I don't understand what My Morning Jacket is doing, Greg. There are several songs on here that Yim Yames and company wrote for Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem to play on the forthcoming Muppets movie, except that the Muppets rejected them. How <laughs> cartoonish do you have to be to be rejected by a cartoon? You know, you're covering Thai soul pop. You're imitating the Beach Boys. The lyrics are just ridiculous. I mean, really, you should need to get a license before you put any children's choir on a song, okay? Not a good idea. I'm sorry. This album really disappoints me. It's a trash it as far as I'm concerned. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are going to celebrate Father's Day with some songs about dads. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by our intrepid team of Robin Lynn and Jason Saldana. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, Tori Southside Malatia. He has a huge collection of soul pop from Thailand. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. He was a mind weaver, always on the phone, telling me all sorts of hurt of his own. Although his voice was sweet to me, I wonder.
This is Brian from Chicago. I'm driving back to my mom's house for the weekend, and Sound Opinions comes on, and, and I hear it's going to be about double nickels on the dime by the Minutemen. And I thought I'd heard the Minutemen before. I thought I knew who they were. I don't know what I really thought, though, because I've never heard this music before. You know, there's that Art Brute song. Um, like, I can't believe I'm just finding out about the replacements. That's how I feel. Why hasn't anybody played me this record before? Why am I 28 years old and hearing this for the first time? I'm going to go buy a copy of it at the Best Buy right as I roll into town, and I'm going to listen to it all weekend. So thanks for that. I really appreciate it. It was a great interview, and it sounds like an amazing record. This is Chris from Reno. I've been listening to the podcast for about six months, and I really dig the show. Uh, but I do have a piece of constructive criticism. At the top of the show, you, you usually go to music news, and often um, you go straight to how are people going to make money in the new digital world. You've talked about lawsuits. You've talked about other struggles among the large corporate interests. And while that's legitimate news about the music industry, in my opinion, it's not really news about music. As a listener and a musician, I don't care so much about the corporate interests. I'm more interested in maybe who's in the studio, uh, planned tours, emerging themes, things along those lines. So that's my two cents. I'm going to keep listening. Keep rocking on. Hey, Jim and Greg. This is Jason from Los Angeles. Now, I hear you guys talk a lot about the cloud and streaming-based music services. And now I work in the music industry, and I live in L.A., so I'm surrounded by very modern technology and people with smartphones attached to their hips and their hands and their heads. And I have got to say, you know, maybe it's making me sound like I'm an old man, but I really don't believe that streaming is going to replace dedicated ownership of files as the universally preferred method of listening to music. Now, I've tried plenty of streaming services myself, and I've, you know, I've enjoyed them when they've worked, but there have been many times where there have been lags uh, in playback or the audio is cut out if my cell phone got into a dead spot where I lost my 3G. Now, I understand that there are downsides to owning MP3s, that you're, you know, you're restricted to having them on a physical media, you have to carry it with you, you have to actively manage the files yourself. You have to back them up. But I think the benefits are huge. My vision of the music industry in the future is that it's going to be a mixture, that people are going to use streaming services for convenience, for discovery, the way that they would use radio, only it's going to be much more sophisticated because they can pick and choose and pick on demand what they want to listen to. There's always going to be a good reason for people to own copies of music. Anyway, that's my two cents. Thanks, guys.
messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.